hello, 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 and welcome to Turntable Podcasting. I am Maria Teresa Wilson, and I'm speaking to you from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And I want to introduce you to our friend, Beverly Turnbull, and he is the author of three novels, The Other Side of Tomorrow, books one, two, and three. He's currently writing a fourth book about his professor and friend and mentor, Professor Donald Byrd. I met Dr. Donaldson Toussaint Louverture Byrd on what I thought for years was our mutual birthday. It turns out that his actual birth date was December 9th, not 7th. I guess he only told me that for effect. He was often a sly prankster at heart. Speaking of the heart, this tall bearded rebel with the tortured trumpet lips and big wild bush could first break your heart then put it back together better than before. Case in point, I was about 18 or 19, sophomore year at Howard University. Washington, D.C. My friend Steve Johnson, alto sax player, and I made an appointment to visit Dr. Bird's office on the third floor of the Fine Arts Building. I had written one of my first notated compositions. Steve stood while I anxiously sat at the piano. We performed my piece entitled Certain Words. When we finished, there was a pregnant moment of silence. Then Dr. Bird uttered certain words, all right. Get the blank out of here with that blank. People were writing blank like that 11 years ago. Crestfallen and shocked, Steve and I tiptoed out of the office into the corridor, which was enlivened by the mellifluous sounds of Mozart and Bach leaking through the doors of classical professors' classrooms and offices. A couple of days later, Dr. Bird called me aside and invited me to his office. He carefully and patiently instructed me on how to properly notate the rhythms to my piece, telling me that how I had written the syncopation was not mathematically wrong, but modern composers used ties to make it easier for players to read. From that day on, I thank him for his help. His method is exactly how I still write my rhythms to this day. This is the melody to certain words that we played for Bird that day. I'm smiling because I'm thinking back earlier when you began the, the podcast and you were you were saying that 
how you and Steve had gone into to his office and he said, come on, and you wanted him to listen to your song and um, um, to, to certain words, is it? And, and you, um, he, 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 he looked at you in silence and then afterwards he told you to take that blankety blank and get the blankety blank out of his blankety blank office. But, um, you know, me, of course, I'm not Donald Byrd, but I, uh, I don't know if I would have been that harsh. But on the other hand, I can understand it because what he was trying to tell you is that, you know, you needed to up your game and kind of maybe revisit that. And and it wasn't that he wasn't going to speak with you at all again. It's just that um, he wanted you to think about it and maybe make it a little stronger from his perspective, you know, as the luminary in his field. Yeah. A few weeks after my invaluable lesson in compositional technique, I was rehearsing on a Saturday in one of the empty classrooms with a jazz group called the Zulu Nation. Dr. Bird happened to be walking down the hall near his office. He would often do his writing at odd hours, sometimes through the night. His office light would be the only one on in the whole building all night. Anyway, when Dr. Bird walked in, we stopped playing. Waiting for his commentary, he paused, then simply said, continue. We did, playing Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage. At the time, little did we know how important Dr. Bird had been to Herbie and Herbie's career. After standing near the door listening, Dr. Bird explained to us that the bassist and pianist were not following the correct form of the piece. He says, it's A-B-A form. You've got to follow that pattern. He called me into the hallway, closed the classroom door, then asked me if I would join his 23-piece band, big band. I was honored and did join, along with my friend Steve Johnson, whom Dr. Bird had invited earlier. teaching you a very life lesson and if you wanted to be a professional 
um, musicians, you, you couldn't have a thin skin, that's for sure. And you had to understand and be able to maintain that kind of fortitude when someone of his stature and, and other people that you would meet um, and and he may have been been the easier one on you. <laughs> you never know. But whatever it was that was coming down the pike in your future musically and professionally, you would be prepared. And it sounds like he was getting you there. Not only just being able to have the tough skin, but in terms of your honing your craft and um, and 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 really exploring the genius there. I think that's it. With the assistance from his assistant band director, Professor Irby, Dr. Bird, who had played with the who's who of jazz throughout the bebop and post-bebop eras, taught us the basic big band repertoire, shiny stockings, moments notice, cute, satin doll, etc. The charts included every instrument except drums, I had to read from the trombone parts and improvise the rest. Dr. Bird commented that drummers often get the short end of the stick, pun probably intended. He often constructively criticized my drum technique as I tried to imitate my drumming heroes. That's not how they did it, he'd say. Nevertheless, I kept trying and he kept me in the band. Bird's go-to favorite player out of all of us was pianist extraordinaire Jerry Allen. She later became quite world famous herself. The big band traveled to and performed at colleges and universities throughout the South, including Spellman and Clark, in a big, beautiful tour bus. Dr. Bird would walk up and down the aisle telling us stories of musical heroes from his vast experience here and abroad. Often, it was a rude awakening. After these weekend engagements, he had us play at a nightclub in Silver Spring, Maryland. Every Monday night, we felt like pros for sure. Meanwhile, back on campus, Dr. Bird, usually clad in deck sneakers, and jeans suits reminiscent of civil rights marchers introduced us to and had us perform for none other than Duke Ellington, Clark Terry, and many others. We were exposed to the real world. During these times, one could often find the rather gruff, mercurial educator studying alongside his beautiful tutor, Louise West, toting a thick law book or ethnomusicology book. 
you hardly ever see one scholar without the other. Considering that he was a world-renowned trumpeter, he rarely displayed his trumpet chops, as they say. Legend has it that someone punched him in the mouth. Maybe he said something that someone didn't like. In any case, Dr. Bird did more instructing than demonstrating. By the way, he got a kick out of calling me different names. Sometimes Blevins, sometimes Kevin or Blevin. One day, I brought my copper-colored trumpet to his office. He didn't play it, but manipulating the valves, he says, Well, Blevins, it looks real pretty, but it feels like you've got blank in the valves. He frowned, then chuckled. Ironically, I never did play trumpet for him intentionally. That day or ever, he may have heard me for a moment one day when he stepped out of the band room. Why and how I had the unmitigated nerve to pick up his trumpet and play it, I still don't know, but I did. Everyone thought I'd gone nuts. As Dr. Bird walked back in, he too looked at me from the side of his face as if I'd lost my mind. Uncharacteristically, he didn't say a word. He didn't have to. You know, it kind of reflects that time when you went into the office. But but he kept you, and he 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 saw something there. And when you were speaking of going on these these bus rides and all, someone told me. Um, you know, I I said it was kind of took me back and thinking about Tom Basie and Duke Ellington and, and all of the individuals that that took those buses down and went to the colleges. But somebody reminded me that the good thing about it at that particular time that nobody was throwing bombs at the buses. Well, that's true, too. But you know what the real bomb would have been is, and the more potent one would have been if he had gotten up on that stage and made a bomb. You know, and that would have been the real bomb, and that would have been even more terrific. But there was something that he saw there in you because he, he, he put you on that bus. And... Um, you know, it seems like there was such a camaraderie there. And, you know, sometimes people can be excessive and a lot of times talented people. But, um, you know what? Uh, you know, somebody told uh, Jennifer Hudson that she couldn't sing. Uh-huh. And, and so an Academy Award, and I don't know how many Grammys later, she is. 
So sometimes people, and, and you know, somebody said, that's mean, that's being mean spirit. But sometimes people do that because they want you to turn around and see what kind of gumption you have, what kind of desire you have, what kind of fire you have. That, that it doesn't matter who says anything, you know, that you're not going to stop and they're not going to turn you around and you're going to keep your faith and, and keep moving on and know and believing in yourself that you can do it. And I think that's what he did. It was rough, but see, here you go. time is in time but you know it, 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 it's real time and and um, it's a nice time that I have had an opportunity to, to have a time with the jazz band you're quite welcome much thank you Bevan Sinclair Turnbull and thank you to all of those people out there listening and, and just tune in and, and uh, you know, keep, keep looking for the Jasmine for Bevin Sinclair Turnbull. Thank you.